is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. First up, we have an exciting new series on EM Quick Hits. The name of the series, QI Corner. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. QI? Really? Those two letters spell boring. But, oh no. This series takes real cases from various campuses of Janus General, dissects them, grinds them, analyzes them, and explores them, and then spits out what you as an individual can learn from them what EM as a community can learn from them, what our systems and admin can learn from them, and it gives us a deeper understanding of how our minds work so that we can not only take great care of our patients, but so we can learn from our mistakes and not beat ourselves up over badness that happens that's out of our control. A special thanks to Jesse McLaren, that's ECG Cases, of course, and Lucas Chartier, who was actually on the EM Cases team way back when we started in 2010, for helping create this series. And our rising star podcaster for this series, the wonderful Tahera Bate, an EM doc from University Health Network in Toronto. Take it away, Dr. Bate. All right. So it's Friday night. You're just finishing up on a really busy main side, cascading over to the fast track and looking for some nice, easy charts to kind of round out the rest of your shift. First chart you pick up is for this young guy. He's complaining of arm pain and swelling. Looks like he's had some multiple recent visits for the same. Triage note also mentions that he's from a shelter. So you scan your EMR. Doesn't show much. Seems like he's got a history of polysubstance, IV drug use, had a recent admission about two or three months ago for bacteremia. Also looks like he's a frequent presenter, usually comes in with some opioid intoxication, sent out with some Narcan. You can see that he's had multiple previous visits in the last week, but There's no documentation available. It doesn't look like there was any blood work or x-rays or anything else done. So with that background, you go and see him. In person, he's kind of a vague historian. He says his right arm has been hurting. It's been hurting for a week or two, and it's getting worse. When he describes it, he just says it feels heavy. You know, he keeps repeating the word heavy, and his pain is making his neck hurt a bit. Denies fever, but says, you know, just doesn't feel well. Nothing really focal on exam or history. He has had some previous ED visits, but he can't recall much about them, except he thinks maybe he was given some antibiotics, he did take them, didn't really help. His triage vitals look okay, except for a mild fever. He's got a temp of 38.3. He's got a heart rate of 105. Hemodynamics otherwise seem okay. On exam, his right arm seems a bit swollen and red, and he's got some obvious track marks, both old and new. There is some warmth around them, looks a little cellulitic, but no obvious abscesses. Grip strength seems okay, he's moving the arm okay, and the exam is reassuring for the big stuff you're thinking about, you know, compartment syndrome, neck fash. So you order some analgesia and some blood work, including blood cultures given his history of bacteremia, and you go on to see your next patient. A few hours later, nurse comes to tell you they haven't been able to get any labs because his veins are so bad. And now the fact that you haven't seen his blood work come back makes a lot more sense. He's also kind of wanting to leave. He's tired of getting poked. He's had three senior nurses try by this point. No one's getting anything. 
on reassessment, when you see him, he says he's feeling better. You know, he's afebrile. He's got a normal heart rate post Tylenol, and he really wants to go. You're able to give him 48 hours worth of oral antibiotics, which is pretty good for your department, along with a script, and you negotiate a return to ED plan with him. You feel pretty good about this discharge plan. It's also 1 a.m. by this time, so your options for other supports are pretty limited. You discharge him, and you finish up your shift. What did you miss? So this patient returns two days later, complaining of ongoing arm and neck pain. But this time, the neck pain is so bad that he's not really moving his neck. And on exam, there is some diffuse C-spine tenderness and some erythema. Barely noticeable, but it's there. Most concerning, when he gets a full upper extremity neuro exam, there's some motor weakness to C5, C6. So a stat CT C-spine shows that there's a 1 by 2 by 8 centimeter epidural abscess and a septic facet joint and discitis. He's admitted for urgent decompression and washout and he recovers well, minimal neurological deficits, thankfully. So you missed an epidural abscess, but why did you miss an epidural abscess? The return visit can be a challenging one. You don't want to reinvent the wheel but you're also on the lookout for stuff that might have been missed the first time around. Add to that a deeply marginalized patient with frequent presentations, and it can be a veritable minefield of potential misses. But return visits are also opportunities to ask not only what was missed, but why it was missed. And more importantly, how could it have been prevented? So when we look at the why, there are two big clinical takeaways from this case. One is to stay alert with these patients. You know, IV drug use can lead to some pretty serious pathology with insidious presentations. Two is consider the return visit as a red flag in its own right. When this case was reviewed, this patient had presented five times to both yours and other EDs in the area, and each time had been discharged with no blood worker investigations. Now we can leave it there and just surmise that this was a mistake or a miss on your part, and you're going to be watching for this in the future. But let's dig a little deeper. You know, every case, every miss, it can be broken down into patient, provider, and system factors. In this case, the patient's IV drug use puts him at risk for some serious pathology. And his lack of social supports make continuity of care especially challenging. As a provider, these patients often have other things that can make a comprehensive and accurate assessment really challenging you know, acute intoxication, mental health concerns. We've all been there, where despite our best efforts, it's a challenging encounter. The episodic nature of care we provide also really doesn't help things. So that brings us to the question of how we can prevent this scenario. If we start looking beyond the dynamics of the patient-MD encounter, there are definitely some system factors we can find. For example, why were none of the previous visit notes available? You know, maybe seeing another MD's assessment might have prevented us from prematurely and incorrectly anchoring on cellulitis in a person who uses IV drugs. Are there other supports we could have provided this patient while he was in our department? We know that marginalized populations can feel insecure in our departments, and they may want to leave before we finish our workup. Could having peer support workers help these patients feel more at ease and more likely to stay? And how about follow-up? You know, any other patient with this complaint and this many visits would likely have had IV antibiotics by now, 
or at least some type of rapid follow-up. What do we do about follow-up for marginalized patients? It's asking these questions that's important. So at the end of the day, you know, what are the take-home points from this case? Our two clinical takeaways are this. So number one, you should always consider serious pathology in people who use IV drugs. Consider listening to the heart for murmurs. Document that normal neuro exam, especially in the objectively febrile patient. Two is beware of the patient with the multiple return visits and consider a return visit a red flag in its own right. Visit notes are absolutely critical. And even without a fancy EMR, you know, not everyone has one, you can probably think of low-tech ways within your own department to keep recent visit notes readily available. Neither of these are particularly groundbreaking takeaways, but they're still good reminders about the basics. From a systems point of view, our takeaway could be to consider ways to better support this high-risk population, especially in the context of the return visit. At the end of the day, remember that return visits, they can be stressful for everyone when you think about what you may have missed. But there are also opportunities to take a step back and ask why it was missed, and more importantly, how we could use quality improvement to prevent it. We all make mistakes, but next time, hopefully, you'll remember that a mistake is never just a mistake. Thank you so much, Dr. Bate. I'm looking forward to the next QI Corner for sure. Moving from spinal epidural abscesses to another kind of abscess, we've got Hans Rosenberg and Michael Gottlieb with the best of CGEM, Just the Facts. Today I am joined by Dr. Michael Gottlieb to talk about his latest CGEM, Just the Facts article, Point of Care Ultrasound for Skin and Soft Tissue Abscesses. So let's get right to it. First of all, Anytime we start using imaging for something that has been classically diagnosed on exam, I really need to know, how good or bad are we at clinically diagnosing abscesses? So I think it really depends on the case. For those that are clinically apparent, when you see purulence exiting this fluctuant mass or just this clearly demarcated area of cellulitis, well, not surprisingly, we're pretty good at that. We're not perfect, but we're good. The data shows we're about 94% sensitive and 84% specific. But if you look at the subset where it's not so clear, those where it's ambiguous, when you look at this, you say, there might be an abscess, but I'm not really sure. In those cases, our sensitivity drops to 43% and our specificity is 42%. In those cases, we are not nearly as good as we think we are. So when we have those cases where we are a bit unsure, would that be a place where POCUS might help us? Absolutely. Now, I love ultrasound for all things, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say that ultrasound is still slightly better than exam alone at 95% sensitive, 85% specific. But that said, in the cases where there's a high pretest probability, again, those cases where it's pretty obvious on an exam, I don't think that ultrasound adds much to the diagnosis. But when we narrow it down to those uncertain cases, ultrasound is 92% sensitive and 77% specific. That is way better than physical exam alone. And in fact, ultrasound has led to a correct change in management in 10% of cases, meaning it led to whether it was an operative management, the decision to perform or not perform an IND, 10% of cases had a correct change in management with a number needed to treat of 10. Meaning if you do ultrasound in your next 10 abscesses, at least one case, you're going to improve care for that patient. 
So now that seems like a very useful way of using POCUS, as we've talked about in these cases where you're a little unsure. So let's say I've got my patient, I've determined that an IND is required. Am I done with uh, the use of POCUS or can it actually provide assistance with the procedure itself? This is where ultrasound can really add value. So first, you can identify the size, the depth to ensure, should this actually be done in the ED? Just because I can do an IND doesn't always mean it should be done in the ED. It also tells me where's the best location. Based on my exam, I might hypothesize the best location for an incision and drainage, but by using ultrasound, I can actually identify where is the closest area to the center of the, of the skin, where would I want to do this incision and drainage, and is there any vasculature or dangerous structures in the way? Now, those who have worked with me clinically know that I love loop drainage. There is good data support that is better than incision and drainage, but when I'm doing a loop drainage, I want to know where are the lateral margins. And again, ultrasound will show me those lateral margins so I can make sure that I'm actually placing the loop in the best possible location. And finally, once I've done the incision and drainage, I want to know, was it adequate? Are there retained pockets of purulence that I need to break up? And so again, ultrasound can help me see, is there an area I may have missed? Did I not probe well enough so the patient doesn't come back and require a repeat IND a couple days later? All right, Mike, you've convinced me. I'm not necessarily a POCUS guy, but it sounds like it's going to be pretty useful. Do you think for the non-experts like me, would you be able to describe how I would perform POCUS when I'm suspicious of an abscess? It's a lot easier than you think. Most of the time you're going to use a linear probe. It's going to give you that proximal resolution. But if you're worried it might be kind of deep, it can be useful to have a deep linear or a curvilinear probe just to see the posterior part of the abscess to make sure it's not tracking too far. You're going to want to use a lot of gel. Cellulitis and abscess hurts, so you really don't want contact with the skin. You want to have a lot of gel so you're able to kind of float that probe gently across the structures. And what you're looking for is your primary three things, which is cellulitis, which will appear as cobblestoning, or it appears like cobblestones on the street, a fluid pocket, which is suggestive of an abscess, air, fascial fluid, evidence of necrotizing fasciitis. And as a quick aside, we need to remember that fluid pockets and abscesses are not always hypoechoic. They can actually appear isoechoic or the same appearance as the surrounding tissue. And in those cases where you're not sure if this is edema or an actual abscess, I'll actually start to apply some pressure and watch inside that pocket to see if it swirls around. And that helps to delineate out, is this actually an abscess or is this just surrounding tissue? And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, use Doppler. This will tell you is their internal flow, which can suggest a pseudoaneurysm, which is a well-known mimic of abscesses. It can look for surrounding hyperemia, which is what I expect to see. If I see no surrounding hyperemia, well, maybe it's not an abscess. Maybe it's a cyst. And finally, where are the vessels? Am I about to incise right through a large artery? And should I choose a different location? Perfect. I think at this point, even somebody who's a bit of a pocus noob like me can actually use it and perform it the right way. That might have been the very best just for facts quick hits we've done yet. So... POCUS can really be helpful for diagnosis of skin abscess, but only in those patients where you're not sure clinically. And perhaps the biggest advantage of POCUS when it comes to skin abscesses is after you've done an ID and then you use POCUS to find those otherwise hidden pockets of pus or deep tracts that might need further surgery. You got to wonder if use of POCUS for skin abscess management prevents bounce backs. So researchers out there, please take note. 
And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, and that's made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade created a serious paradigm shift in ED scheduling. I mean, your schedule should fit around your life's plans, not the other way around. The Metricade system does a great job of balancing the needs of the department with your personal scheduling desires. The need to trade shifts is dramatically reduced. You essentially get the shifts you asked for. Check out metricade.com slash emcases to learn more about the Metricade system. It's been a real game changer for me and the folks I work with. Next up, we have Swami, who's going to explain to us how the oxygen saturation monitor, that little thing that goes on your finger, can tell you a lot more than just the patient's oxygen saturation. To be a true MacGyver in the emergency department, truly somebody who is able to adapt to whatever circumstance they're in, you have to embrace multitaskers, devices that can be used for multiple different things. Trauma shears are a great example of this. We can use them for so many different purposes. I want to talk about a different one of these multitaskers, which is the O2 saturation monitor. It can give a ton of information. It's readily available, but I think sometimes we take it for granted. And it's all the things beyond oxygen saturation that the monitor can actually give you. One thing that's important to note is that we have some recent data telling us that pulse oximeters have a racial bias. It's inherent in the pulse oximeter device itself. We'll include some links to longer discussions on this, including one that I had with Alden Landry on MRAP. The short of the long, though, is that many of these devices were only tested in lighter skin individuals, and so they give inaccurate measurements in patients with darker skin, and the direction they misread in is reading a higher oxygen saturation when the patient might actually have a lower oxygen saturation, which of course can be pretty dangerous. Let's move past that for a moment, though, and let's really focus on what the O2 sat monitor can give us. Obviously, it gives us an oxygen saturation. Let's put that aside. It also gives you a pulse, a pulse reading at wherever that O2 sat monitor is. We actually discussed how you can use that feature of the pulse ox monitor when you're placing a transvenous pacemaker all the way back in quick hits number 20. In that discussion, we talked about how the pulse ox gives you a heart rate, but it's also giving you a reading of peripheral perfusion. If you see a strong waveform from that pulse ox, it tells you not only that the heart is beating at X beats per minute, but that the cardiac contractility is strong enough to create a peripheral pulse wherever that pulse ox monitor is. The most common place we put these is on the end of the finger, so it's telling you that the heart is contracting hard enough to cause a pulsatal flow to that digit. That brings us to the concept of the perfusion index. Depending on your monitor, you may see the perfusion index as some sort of a number or a number of bars. Honestly, I didn't know much about Perfusion Index until I had a chance to chat with Scott Weingart about this on the September 2021 MRAP Critical Care Mailbag. The Perfusion Index is a ratio between the pulsatile and non-pulsatile blood flow. It's a marker of the strength of the pulse that's arriving at the pulse oximeter monitor. A good Perfusion Index requires both a good cardiac output and also it requires that the patient isn't profoundly vasoconstricted. If you think about that mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury, what we're always shooting for, that can be achieved in multiple different ways. In a patient with septic shock, they can have a wide open arterial system, so minimal peripheral resistance, but the extremities can be warm and well perfused because the heart is just slamming away. In the patient with hemorrhagic shock, you can also see a map of 65, but we're getting there in a very different way. 
The patient is obviously volume down, but they're compensating for that loss of volume by increasing their peripheral resistance with all their circulating catecholamines. In this patient, you can still have that map of 65, but the extremities are gonna be cold and the perfusion index will be low. When we look at our monitors and see that perfusion index, we can see it expressed in a number of different ways. There can be a numerical range, somewhere from 0.3 to 20. Around less than 0.5, you actually will lose your oxygen waveform, indicating that there's not enough pulsatile flow to create a waveform that can be detected. The other thing that you can see are these variable bars. The more bars, the stronger the peripheral perfusion. If the perfusion index is low, it typically results from one of two issues. Either the cardiac output is low, we can use a cardiac echo probe to diagnose that, or the patient is overly vasoconstricted, and the best way for us to figure that out is just to feel their extremities. If they're cold, they're overly vasoconstricted. If they're warm, they're vasodilated. Understanding the perfusion index and the information that the oxygen saturation or pulse oximeter is giving you is really important. I think what we often see is that we put the pulse oximeter on a patient who is hypotensive, and when we can't get a good waveform, what do we do? We increase the oxygen, we change the location. What we're not registering in our head is that the poor waveform has nothing to do with the patient's oxygen level. It has to do with their perfusion. So if you have a hypotensive patient and you're getting a poor waveform on the pulse oximeter or the saturation monitor, what it tells you is that you've got poor perfusion to that extremity where you've put the pulse oximeter device. So when you have a shocky patient with a poor waveform, your response shouldn't be to give more oxygen or, or even really to change the location of the device, but rather to say, this patient is underperfused and I need to supply them with some kind of an agent to increase their perfusion whether that means that they need more fluid or blood, or if they need a vasoactive substance that's gonna give them more cardiac output. Let's recap real quick. The pulse oximeter or the oxygen saturation monitor can give you a ton of information. It is a multitasker. It gives you an oxygen saturation, it gives you a pulse, but it also gives you a perfusion index and it is used or it can be used as a marker of peripheral perfusion. It's not just about the blood pressure, it's about the perfusion getting to the end organs, getting to the extremities. That's the information that we can get from that pulse ox. When you put it on a patient and you're not seeing a good waveform, don't think about the oxygen level being an issue, think about the perfusion being the issue. Who would have thunk you could get so much valuable information from a little machine we put on the patient's finger? A sat, a pulse, and perfusion. And so interesting that it overestimates the actual blood oxygenation in people with darker skin. Very good to know. All right, moving on to peds. Sarah Reed is back with a quick hit on a diagnosis that is easy to miss, is easy to label as something else mistakenly, and yet is pretty easy to pick up if you just know what to ask for on history. You might have an infant present with a spell or a change in behavior that the parents are worried about. And sometimes they've even actually gone on the internet and seen some videos and they come in thinking that their baby has something called infantile spasms. If you're lucky, they've taken a video to show you, or maybe the baby even does the movement during your assessment, but most of the time you'll be relying on their description. So infantile spasms are also known as West syndrome because they were first described by Dr. William West in his own four-month-old son. And this syndrome is made up of a triad of spasms, a characteristic EEG pattern known as hypsarrhythmia, and developmental delay. The incidence is about 1 in 2,000 kids, and this is a severe form of epilepsy. 
The time to initiating treatment makes a big difference in terms of the developmental outcome for the child. So for those of us working in an emergency department, recognizing it and getting the baby referred for an EEG and neuro assessment is really important. 90% of the time, these seizures start in infancy, usually between four and seven months of age. The spasms are brief contractions of either flexor or extensor muscle groups, and it can range from a kind of a large jackknife motion of the body to just subtle head bobbing. Typically, infantile spasms look like sort of the baby bowing at the waist with extension and elevation of the arms and tonic extension of the legs, so it can look a bit like an ab crunch. They're usually brief and last only a few seconds, and they often come in clusters. The baby often cries either before or after, as if they didn't like it. And you can see some eye deviation, nystagmus, altered respirations, or even a brief loss of consciousness. These infantile spasms don't occur during sleep, but they often occur just as the baby's falling asleep or waking up. And because they have a lot of different looks, I included a few videos in the show notes for you to to watch. And the most common underlying causes for this would be a baby who's had an anoxic brain injury, so they have hypoxemic ischemic encephalopathy, they've had a stroke, there's some trauma, there's an underlying chromosomal or metabolic disorder, or tuberous sclerosis. So sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference between this infantile spasm syndrome versus a less serious non-epileptic movement, like is the baby just having reflux? Do they have colic? Do they have an exaggerated startle? Or maybe they have benign myoclonus of infancy, which can look actually a lot like infantile spasms, but the EEG is normal in that case. On history, you want to get a really good picture of what the spells look like, so really able to picture it in your mind. You want to know if it's associated with feeding or reflux, what the behavior of the baby is like before and after. And you might even want to ask about development. So are they doing what they should be doing for their age? And have they lost any of their milestones? And that's what we call developmental regression. Nice to know whether the pregnancy and perinatal history was okay and whether there's any family history of seizures or developmental delay. And just try and get a good neurological exam. You might want to look at the skin for birthmarks or signs of tuberous sclerosis and whether there's any dysmorphic features. So the diagnosis is really by EEG. The first-line treatment is vigabitrin, and sometimes steroids are also added. So really the goal of treatment is no surprise. It's to stop the spasms, improve the EEG, and thus improve developmental outcome. And delayed treatment, as I mentioned, leads to worse outcomes in terms of mental retardation and developmental delay. So if you see a baby and you're concerned that they have these little stereotype movements, that maybe it could be infantile spasms, a call to your pediatric neurologist or the pediatric hospitalist or your pediatric referral site is very reasonable at the time you see the baby because often they actually need to be admitted in order to expedite the EEG and make the diagnosis. Haven't thought about infantile spasms in a really long time, so it's great to be reminded. Thank you, Dr. Reed. I highly recommend watching the videos in the show notes because once you've got a visual of what these can look like, you're armed with the right questions to ask the parents. If you pick this up on history early, you've really made a huge difference and reduced morbidity in this child. Last but not least, we have my colleague at North York General, one of the brains behind our Q&A Pearl of the Week, Dr. Alicia Targonsky. 
The Q&A Pearl of the Week is one of our many phone offerings that you can get delivered each week to your inbox by hitting the red newsletter sign-up button near the top right of the EM Cases homepage on your laptop, or it's just below the list of latest releases on your iPhone on the EM Cases homepage. So here's Dr. Targonsky on deciding whether to use beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, or digoxin for rate control for AFib. Call to recess to see a 71-year-old woman presenting with a sensation of fluttering in her chest. She has a heart rate of 118 to 155 beats per minute, but otherwise normal vital signs. You enter the room to find an elderly woman who is alert, pleasant, and talkative. First, a sigh of relief. You know this is a stable patient. A quick look through her chart shows a history of hypertension and dyslipidemia, and she's taking a diuretic, candesartan, and a statin. You see an ECG on the chart, with an irregularly irregular neurocomplex tachycardia consistent with atrial fibrillation and rapid ventricular response. We've all seen this type of patient before. This is bread and butter emergency medicine. You have this urge to reach for the procainamide or the pads or perhaps the IV ray control meds, but you know better than that. You've read the CAPE best practice checklist on AFib, and you know that before you rush to manage the rate and rhythm, you're going to rule out an acute underlying medical cause. Usually a good targeted history and physical is sufficient to rule out a PE, sepsis, acute CHF, or any other provoking illness. After all, jumping to rate and rhythm control in those complex medical patients can be dangerous. The patient is able to provide a history of feeling perfectly well until a few days ago when she started to feel a sense of fatigue and discomfort in her chest. She denies any chest pain, shortness of breath, or presyncope. She does complain of a sensation of palpitations that began yesterday, but is more noticeable today. There's no history of PND, orthopnea, or peripheral edema, no infectious symptoms, no alcohol or new medications. Her exam is normal, aside from the rapid, irregular heart rate. With this reassurance, you're feeling pretty good about focusing on the AFib itself. Again, since you're familiar with the CAPE checklist, you know that the cardioversion risk in this patient is much higher than that 50-year-old man from last shift who just came off a weekend of binge drinking. She has two CHADS risk factors, including age and hypertension, and her symptoms have an unclear onset, likely more than 24 hours. By the way, did you know that according to a JAMA study in 2020, patients following up at an arrhythmia clinic could identify when they were in AFib or flutter only 64% of the time? This gets even more abysmal when they look at the older patients. Barely over 50% of the time were they correct. From my experience, many older patients cannot sense their AFib once the rate goes down below 110 or so. So you've settled on your decision to manage this woman's AFib with rate control. The next question is naturally, calcium channel blockers or beta blockers? Now, before I proceed, the following discussion pertains to the well, non-crashing, vitally stable patient with AFib. I used to be very dogmatic about this debate. From clinical experience, diltiazem always seemed safe and effective. In fact, I'd roll my eyes when asked to give metoprolol because in my gut, I knew that dilt would work better. So naturally, I was ecstatic when a small 2015 trial compared DILT to metoprolol and validated my experience. Patients given IV DILT achieved a rate control of 100 beats per minute or less faster than metoprolol, and a greater proportion of DILT patients were rate controlled at 30 minutes. Now we have a meta-analysis published in 2021 with a total of 150 patients. So what's the verdict? Diltizam still comes out on top. Faster time to rate control and a greater proportion rate controlled with DILT over metoprolol. There are some data suggesting you can go with 10 milligrams right off the bat before the usual 0.25 milligrams. Importantly, you should ask yourself this. What is the patient taking already? 
Are they on a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker already? You should probably go with the same class they're on. Do they have a history of CAD or CHF? I'd go with the beta blocker. This makes more sense long-term anyway. Are they asthmatic? Probably better to choose diltiazem. But even more importantly, it doesn't matter what you give them IV in the emergency department if you don't give them an oral dose as well, especially if you don't want them hanging around the ED for long. Nothing like getting a patient ready for discharge when you've rate controlled them with IV meds and now they're going fast again. Oops, forgot the PO meds too. Along the same lines, why don't we just try oral meds right from the start? I've given oral doses of beta blocker or diltiazem even before trying IV and have seen more than a handful of patients do just fine. I bet if you ask a cardiologist, they might even say AFib with RVR is not an emergency. Sure, providers are under pressure to discharge patients to reduce length of stay. But what's worse for the patient is a bounce back for rate control. And it's not like the patient will be getting IV dilt at home once they're discharged. So just make sure they get the oral meds too. What if you can't rate control them? You've masked out their diltiazem or beta blocker. Should you switch over to the other class? I think your patient is probably getting admitted anyway, so I wouldn't get too pensive. I'd probably talk to medicine or allergy colleagues and consider digoxin. Sometimes this will be reserved for those patients with associated CHF or maybe those with a soft blood pressure, but DIG works well for your other afibers as well. The loading dose is 0.25 milligrams IV once. It will take a while to work, so don't stare at the monitor. Magnesium is an option too, although the data are weak. One trial compared placebo to 4.5 grams IV or 9 grams IV of magnesium. Now that is a lot of mag. There is a modest benefit in rate control. Mag might be more likely beneficial though in those hypomag patients or those with malnutrition or alcohol use disorder. I think if you're considering mag, the patient's probably getting admitted. In general, those patients with AFib who are highly symptomatic, difficult to rate control below 100 beats per minute, or who have associated CHF that has not improved with ED management will likely need admission. Oh, and if your patient is presenting with flutter, prepare for a stubborn, difficult to control rate. Good luck. For an explanation on why this is, I urge listeners to go back to episode 112 with Drs. Matu and Dorian. Electricity works best for flutter when it's safe to do so. So what's the bottom line? Make sure your patient doesn't have an acute medical illness driving the AFib. If you've ruled it out, then evidence supports diltiazem over metoprolol as the go-to IV medicine for rate control, at least in the ED. But it's a nuanced decision, and both work well. I'd argue that more important than your choice of IV rate control is your decision to give something orally as well, including a prescription. I like diltiazem 120 mg controlled release or metoprolol 25 to 50 mg BID. For the difficult-to-control tachycardic patients, don't forget about DIG. And if you're discharging the patient home, look at their CHADS risk factors. If they're over the age of 65 or have any one of the usual CHADS factors, plus no contraindications, start them on a direct oral anticoagulant. The chances of a patient staying on a DOAC long-term is much higher if you start one upon discharge from the ED. So do the right thing. All right, here's a quick review. On our first ever QI Corner Quick Hit, we learned to beware of IV drug use and occult sources of infection like spinal epidural abscess and endocarditis. We learned that the lack of social supports, drug intoxication, and mental health concerns can make patient evaluation challenging and are risk factors for poor outcomes that multiple return visits are a red flag for serious pathology, and that peer support workers in the ED for marginalized populations might help us take better care of these patients. 
Actually, stay tuned for a special live podcast on peer support workers in the ED as part of my visit to Calgary EM for their Hodsman Lecture Day this spring. I'll be interviewing Eddie Lang, who you've heard before on EM Cases, uh, Mike Betzner, who you might have seen at EMU. We'll be talking about EP leads. We'll be talking with Katie Lynn, who is an emergency doctor and on the stroke team. Uh, We'll be talking to her about when to call a code stroke on patients with posterior circulation stroke symptoms, a very challenging subpopulation. And we'll be talking to Marshall Ross on the use of ketamine for acute suicidality in the emergency department. Yes, I know it sounds crazy, but this is something that is cutting edge and kind of cool. And then we'll also be talking to Andrew McRae, who was on one of our podcasts that we did on high-sensitivity troponins. He'll be talking about when not to order a troponin at all and the recent HEAR score. All right, getting back to our quick review... When it comes to diagnosing skin abscesses, if you're not sure about the diagnosis, use your POCUS. It's been shown to improve diagnostic accuracy, but really only in those cases where your pretest probability is low. And there's a long list of advantages of using POCUS during your IND. Swami beautifully explained how O2SAT monitors have an inherent racial bias and that you can know the patient's heart rate and peripheral perfusion just by looking at the waveform. The perfusion index can also be helpful, and don't assume that a lack of O2SAT waveform is because of poor O2SAT alone. You know, rather than moving that SAT probe around to a different location a million times, consider how you can fix their perfusion problem. Next up was Sarah Reed on infantile spasms. Infantile spasms are easy to misdiagnose as reflux or infantile colic or exaggerated startle reflex. You want to pick these up early in the ED because early initiation of treatment improves outcomes. So if parents describe the baby doing an abdominal crunch type movement for a few seconds, maybe as they're falling asleep or as they're waking up, or they do this with a cry before or after, or even if they just have a subtle head bobbing that lasts for a few seconds and they do it multiple times, you really need to rule out infantile spasms. That patient needs a referral and an EEG. And finally, for rapid atrial fibrillation rate control meds, diltiazem and metoprolol are both reasonable first-line drugs, with diltiazem maybe being a bit better. If your patient takes a calcium channel blocker already at home, use diltiazem, If they take a beta blocker at home, use metoprolol. Know the contraindications of each. If deltiazem or metoprolol fail, you can try the other, but it's probably best to wait 30 minutes between doses. Give the oral dose soon after achieving rate control with the IV dose, and don't forget the prescription for home. Consider DIG, especially in patients with acute heart failure or soft blood pressure. All right. In the coming months, we have what I think is the first ever coverage of a topic on an emergency medicine foam resource that I know of. And that topic is financial planning for EM docs. And this is with our expert, Matt Pointer, who runs courses on this kind of thing. For me, at least, producing this podcast on financial planning has like revolutionized the way I think about earning, saving, and investing. And it seems to have actually made my EM career more fulfilling. It's a topic we rarely discuss at work, but I think is so important for a successful career in EM. So stay tuned for that one. 
We also will be releasing two podcasts on the when, how, and why of cardiac arrest emergency department care with an incredible panel of diverse experts who have all been on EM cases many times before, Sarah Gray, Scott Weingart, Rob Samard, and Burke Tillman. I can't wait for those casts. So until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 